This morning, we kick off, as it's kickoff Sunday, our fall season at Grace with a sermon series on the greatest sermon you've never heard. None of us have. Many of us, most of us have read this sermon, but none of us were alive to hear these words when they were first expressed to a gathered crowd on a mountain. I am referring to what is known traditionally as the Sermon on the Mount. And with that brief introduction, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew, because that's where we find this teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. I believe it's on page 677 in your pew Bible. We have a, a copy of this world-famous homily thanks to Matthew's gospel. And when you open up to Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that the sermon actually, if you flip a little bit, encompasses three chapters. A much more abbreviated version is found in the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew's the primary source. And more than likely, Jesus offered this message on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Gennesaret, a place which I can actually say I've been, which is kind of cool. And just as a little plug, I want to encourage you, if you would like to go and have never been, there's still opportunity. It's getting close to the, the final deadline of being able to go on the trip uh, to the Holy Land at the end of February, the end of March that I'll be leading. But I want you, as you have that open, to picture that, that, that mountainside, because it's against this backdrop, Jesus is going to offer his first main public address. And here, Jesus is going to begin to describe and explain the shape of life in the kingdom, what life is like for those who follow him. And the introduction to this sermon, which we'll be looking at this morning, is known as the Beatitudes. You may even have that subheading as your Bibles are open in your Bible, the Beatitudes. These eight blessed are the statements by Jesus are in and of themselves well-known and beloved by many. But let's dive in. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I said, the Beatitudes, these 12 verses in and of themselves, merit a sermon series of their own. But today, what I'd like to do is consider how the opening of Jesus' most famous teaching is a means of appreciating the whole of what he's trying to teach us in this sermon. Together, therefore, we're going to explore three things today. First, what Jesus is not trying to say through the Beatitudes. Second, what Jesus is trying to say through the Beatitudes. And third, why it matters. How it affects how we hear and receive the rest of his sermon. So, what is Jesus not saying here? 
you have your Bibles open, and I encourage you to keep them open, Jesus, as he speaks the Beatitudes, you'll notice each of the Beatitudes has two parts, a pronouncement of a blessing and then the reason for that blessing. And it's as a result of this pattern that we can see that many people have heard Jesus' opening words as being prescriptive. Prescriptive, meaning Jesus begins by teaching us what to do, how to cultivate our inner thoughts and demeanor. If, in fact, if you grew up in traditional Sunday school, like we just dismissed our kids to, Bible adventures, you may have even been taught to think of the Beatitudes as two words rather than one, as the Beatitudes. Anyone ever hear that before? The Beatitudes? No, not this crowd. Okay. <laughs> in other words, this list of attitudes, this list of attitudes is how those who belong to God should think act, and be. Some will read even more into this teaching, in fact, and believe that Jesus not only tells us how to be, but Jesus is also teaching what rewards are in store for those who abide by them. Read like this, the Beatitudes can become sort of if-then statements, with God waiting for us to fulfill our side of the deal so that he can then bless us. Is that what we're supposed to do with the Beatitudes? Is that it? Are we supposed to be like that? As church history shows, there have been many who have taught and believed that poverty and misery and martyrdom are meritorious conditions that somehow make one holy and justify blessedness from God. We often consider such persons to be the spiritually elite, closer to God than the rest of us. But here's the thing. If these are the conditions for blessing... How much poverty of spirit? How much grief? How much suffering? How hungry for righteousness does one have to be, does one have to experience to meet the standard of approval? How much is enough? Are we really to aspire to be poor? To grieve? To be persecuted in order to be blessed? I mean, I don't know about you, but... Most people don't normally think of poverty, mourning, or persecution as blessings. We would call them sorrows, not blessings. Let me push it a little bit further. If I hear Jesus making a conditional statement when he proclaims, blessed are the pure in heart, how am I supposed to hear Jesus later in this same sermon when he also says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can I ever, on my own, be truly pure in heart? I don't know if you're getting the tension here, but it's this kind of understanding of the Beatitudes, frankly, that has left many followers of Jesus either filled with false pride out of a vaulted sense of spiritual superiority or plagued with guilt over the kind of person one is supposed to be cannot live up to. This kind of understanding of the Beatitudes turns the gospel for me, the good news that Jesus seeks to impart to us, into bad news. But here's the thing. What what if the Beatitudes are not the Beatitudes, but something else entirely? What if we've got it all wrong? And, and, And if we've got it all wrong, what is Jesus trying to say here? If we've talked about what Jesus is not trying to say, then what is Jesus trying to say here? Those Bibles open. 
Leading into this sermon, you'll see that Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 4, Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming his basic message, the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he demonstrates the truth of his announcement by acting with God's rule from the heavens, by meeting the most desperate needs of the people around him. And as a result, you'll see at the, near the end of chapter 4, Matthew goes on to inform us sick and suffering people were coming to be healed from as far away as Syria. I think it's very, very interesting today that we see that in Scripture, Syria. And Matthew goes on to say whatever their illness or pain, if they were possessed by demons, insane, paralyzed, Jesus healed them all. Enormous crowds. This is the picture we should have as this sermon is being prepared. Enormous crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. Beloved, it's in the midst of this crowd of people, the poor, the hungry, the grief-stricken, the persecuted, Jesus begins to preach. And I believe this is the key to understanding the Beatitudes. We need to pay attention to the audience, to the context in which Jesus gives us this sermon. Those surrounding Jesus, if you're picturing this with me, those surrounding Jesus, the crowds following him, consisted of the kinds of people most would assume to be cursed, not blessed. Truly, it would be difficult to make these people look good. After all, the conventional wisdom of the time was, if you're poor, if you're suffering, if you're persecuted, you probably did something to deserve it. Or at a bare minimum, I have to stay away from you because you've got bad luck surrounding you. And it's worth pointing out that that kind of thinking hasn't changed all that much. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? Jesus, however, starts his sermon with a little show and tell. Jesus points to those people who are directly before him who had just received the power of the kingdom through him. Jesus highlights, in other words, those who from a human point of view were regarded as the most hopeless, the most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or interest, and acknowledges them as enjoying the touch of God from Jesus' heart, voice, and hands. Do you see it? Beloved, the Beatitudes isn't an exhaustive list of prescriptions for being blessed by God. The Beatitudes single out cases that evidence the presence, the care, the provision of God in Christ available in life's circumstances that seem beyond all human hope. The Beatitudes announce that those who have little or no hope, those who appear to have little to offer to the world, those who are on the fringes of society, those who live in ways the world considers weak, unproductive, and unsuccessful, those who are labeled by the powers that be the losers, are not cut off from the kingdom blessings that Jesus brings. After all, if you have your Bible open, the Bible open, the subheading isn't the conditions, the requirements. These are the Beatitudes, and that word Beatitudes comes from the Latin translation of the Scriptures. Beatitudes means blessings. These are the blessings. Challenges the English word for blessing, the English word blessing, I mean, has been watered down. I mean, we throw around blessing a lot, and, and blessing for, mo for many of us is little more than a prayer before a meal, or it's the conveying of some warm, fuzzy sentiment. But the original Hebrew word for blessing is berha. And berha is about flourishing. 
Berha, God's blessing, is about making all things new and fully alive. Berha, in fact, conveys this idea of I am with you. I am on your side. So in other words, Jesus opens his sermon by declaring not the expectations or the requirements of God, but the declaration that God is on our side. In Christ, God is with us and for us. Even if you are poor of spirit, you are blessed in Christ. And we need to stop there because this, this just gets me every time. We need to stop there. Think about the significance of Jesus starting his announcement here. To be a person of God is to be a person with spirit, filled with the spirit. The term to be poor in spirit in Greek basically means to know nothing of the spirit of God. Those, in other words, who are poor in spirit are ignorant of God's law, ignorant of his spirit, ignorant of his word. They're ignorant of anything spiritual. They're as far from God as one can possibly be. And yet Jesus includes such persons. He starts by listing them, the spiritually inadequate, those who fail at what is needed before God and feel this failure. He includes them. He starts with them as included in the blessings of the kingdom. Wow. Wow. And again, I said earlier, we don't normally think of mourning as a blessing. We think of it as a sorrow. I mean, no one wants to mourn. Anyone want to mourn? Raise your hand. No, no one seeks to mourn, right? No one seeks to mourn. But Jesus declares, he announces with the coming of the kingdom, mourning becomes a blessing because the mourners will be comforted. I could go on, but I think we get the point. The gospel of the Beatitudes is that no human condition, no matter how hopeless it may appear, no matter how despised by the world, no matter how unsuccessful or insignificant others may deem it, no human condition disqualifies anyone from God's grace in Christ. The good news is God does help, though, who, help those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who perhaps just do not help themselves. So we know what Jesus isn't saying in the Beatitudes. We now know what he is saying. Why does it matter? How does this affect how we hear and receive the rest of Jesus' sermon? This new and surprising understanding of who is blessed matters because this isn't just an us and them thing. As if we think, well, I know I deserve to be blessed. I'm glad they're blessed too. The Beatitudes a state affirm, affirm a state of blessing that already exists for everyone. The, the Beatitudes, rightly understood, are a pronouncement of God's grace. Yes, each Beatitude declares a group of people usually regarded as afflicted as actually blessed, but as I said before, this is not an exhaustive list. And even more than that, those who Jesus says are blessed didn't have to do anything to attain this blessing. In fact, they couldn't do anything to attain this blessing. Jesus simply declares they are blessed that God is with them. And this is no less true for anyone else, for any of us. If it were not for God's grace, no one could actually be blessed. No one would be blessed. We are blessed, all of us, not because we are properly behaved, not because we cooperated with God, not because we are sufficiently sincere, not because we practice good intentions, not because we helped ourselves, 
We are blessed because we desperately need help and God graciously wills to save us. It matters that this sermon begins not with a list of prescriptions, but instead with a description of the gracious blessings of our God in Christ because these blessings shape and transform us into grace-filled people. In other words, if you're not getting it, now what I want to underline is the Beatitudes not only clarify what we have thanks to Jesus, the Beatitudes here set the stage for who we are empowered to be in Christ. The rest of the sermon, all of the teaching that will follow, all of the behaviors and ethics Jesus will outline for us are impossible expectations for us apart from the grace of God. However, And that's why this is so important. Thanks to the grace of God, the blessing of Christ, the filling of the Spirit, we are transformed. We can become the people we were created to be. And what were we created to be? If you wanted to summarize this sermon on the Beatitudes in a single sentence, it's this. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to to be a blessing. We are created to live generously. Grace is the gift we receive and grace is the gift we have to share. For all of the diversity represented in this room, what we have in common is the grace that we receive and what we have in common is the grace that is ours to share. And grace is given to us by God so that generosity will follow. Generosity is the expression of grace. Generosity is a matter of action of intentions, of the heart. And this this distinction is important because we tend to associate generosity with the well-off. However you define the well-off, we tend to associate generosity with the well-off. We associate generosity with those we perceive as having much to give. But most of us don't perceive ourselves as having the ability to be generous. We don't believe we have much to offer. We don't think we have anything to give. We say things like, I just don't have enough time. I'm busy. I don't have any time. I don't have any time. Or we say, I haven't earned enough yet. I'm not making enough money or I've got debts. I don't have enough where I can give anything. Or I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough education. Some of us may even be, you know, that's the whole way we're trying to live our lives. We're living our lives to get to the point where we hope we can be generous. But that's, that's, completely missing what's going on here. This, we, when we see generous, generosity this way as something we work towards, when we see generosity this way, we are focusing on what we can do. We're perceiving God's blessings as something we earn or achieve. But this is Jesus' whole point. This is why this matters. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do, what God seeks to do through us. It's not about what we earn or achieve What we think we have, it's about what we have been given, the grace of God. Generous living is is not just about giving money. It's not even just about giving. It has to do with the whole of who we are and how we care for our neighbors. In Christ, God can use our uniqueness, even our limitations, our weaknesses, our eccentricities. He can even use what we perceive we lack to communicate his powerful presence and love to extend the blessing of his grace to others. Beloved, grace begets grace. And our generosity 
is to remind people, to reflect to people, God's generosity. Paul states this directly in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter four when he writes, do you remember this? He writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power, this grace belongs to God and does not come from us. I gotta tell you, get ready. And I'm so excited about this as we're gonna go through this sermon because Jesus is going to expand the horizons of our perceptions and our capacity. He's going to expand the horizons of our perceptions and our capacity for generosity throughout this sermon. Over these next few weeks, Jesus will encourage and challenge us to be generous with our testimony, to be generous with our time, to be generous with our practices, to be generous with our thoughts, to be generous with our resources, to be generous with our forgiveness, to be generous with our influence, to be generous with every opportunity. And through it all, please don't miss this. We will only be able to follow, to live as Jesus calls us, if we are empowered by the Spirit of God and living out of the blessings of God's grace. In fact, it's out of the grateful outpouring of our love from God and for God through our love and service to others that generous living becomes the fulfillment of the great commandment. Let me say that one more time. It's out of the grateful outpouring of our love from God and for God through our love and service to others that generous living becomes the fulfillment of the great commandment. And that means the question isn't, as the famous commercial suggests, what's in your wallet? The question is, by the grace of God, what's in your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I want to give you just two snapshots of generous living, just the briefest of pictures of what this looks like empowered by the grace of God. The first is the story of a woman named Tracy Alter, and it's a story not of giving, but of receiving. On Thanksgiving of 1993, Tracy was a pregnant single mom living on welfare and food stamps. While other families were preparing turkey and all the trimmings, Tracy was just gonna open a couple of cans. And then came the knock at her door. A man from a nearby restaurant was delivering a full Thanksgiving dinner from an anonymous donor. The man dropped off the food and left. Tracy was so overwhelmed, she spent the rest of the day crying. She asked around to try to find out who the giver was. She never found out until several years later. By that time, Tracy had moved out of her apartment and was working as a nurse at a local hospital. She was, in fact, caring, had been caring for an elderly woman with MS who was nearing death. And this woman's name was Margot. And Tracy remembered Margot from her old apartment building. Well, here's the thing. Three days before Margot died, she took Tracy's hand and said, Happy Thanksgiving. And Tracy had that opportunity in that moment to share with Margot how that one act had moved her to live a life of generosity, to perceive her life in Christ not from what she lacked, but from what she had, to perceive her life in Christ no, no longer as waiting to have something to share, but overflowing with blessings to bestow on others in the name of Jesus. That's generous living. That's, that's a way that we can become more generous in Christ by remembering all the grace we have received from God through others. The power of that memory is a catalyst awaking that power of grace, the power of the spirit within us. Here's another one, a little closer to home. A friend of mine shared this with me. She was in Big Lots. 
And she was dropping in real quick. One of many errands to run that day. You've ever had that kind of day where you know it's on the list, you're ticking it off, you got things to do, places to go, people to see. Into Big Lots. And while she was in Big Lots, got her stuff, there was a man in line, possibly homeless, clearly down on his luck. And this man was just had just a few items, just barely what he could hold in his hand. And he had actually, you could also see, he had counted out every penny to make sure he could pay for what he had. But as he went to go pay, he came up short. And he was desperate. He wanted to run out and see if he had dropped any money on the way in. And in the midst of all this, there was one customer in line who was visibly frustrated. This was taking way too much time. This guy ought to know better. And my friend was busy too. She said, I'm busy too. I was in a hurry too. But the Lord gave her a different point of view in that moment. And in giving her a different point of view, empowered her to live differently. And when that man had run out and he came back in, finding just coins on the ground to try to make up the difference, she had paid for it all. And he was absolutely floored. Floored. Now here's the thing. It was seven bucks, seven dollars. But what my friend shared is, it may have only been seven dollars, but to that man in that moment, it was like seven million. His countenance changed, his posture changed. In that moment, a person was visibly transformed by living generously. Jesus will say later in this sermon, and you probably know this verse, he will say, ask and you shall receive. And isn't it, I'm going to suggest to you now, and I'll probably come back to it then, isn't it funny how we always hear that ask and you shall receive in relation to what we get, we might get? Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. And we're like, well, all right then, I've got some requests. <laughs> but what if we heard ask and you shall receive, not in terms of what we can get, but in terms of what we can give? I want to, challenge you. I want to invite you. I want to encourage you out of the grace that you have been given to ask God this week as we start this series to show you ways he is calling you. He is empowering you to live generously. Ask and you shall receive. Ask and you might be surprised. What we've seen this morning is that Jesus starts his preaching with a benediction. He starts his preaching with a benediction. Anyone who's been in church very long knows this is backwards. The benediction goes at the end of the worship service, at the close of the sermon, after the people you have put in your time. I mean, if you offer the good stuff first, knowing human nature, people are liable to get up and leave. Logic dictates, are you with me on this? I mean, logic dictates the rewards come after you've earned them. First, you lay out the ethical musts and the religious oughts, and then you reserve the spoils for those who deserve them. You know, the ones who show they plan on taking things seriously, who prove themselves worthy. But what we've seen this morning is Jesus reverses this approach to faith. He gives the benediction at the beginning of the sermon. He tells the crowd, he tells us, we are already loved. We are already blessed. Jesus begins not with a list of commands, but with words of blessing. Because the Beatitudes are not a scheme of performance and rewards to make us feel guilty or to separate us as spiritually elite. No, these are blessings. This is a benediction, and it comes first because without the grace of God, we can do nothing. Without the grace of God, we are nothing. But thanks to the grace of God, 
we can live generously. My friends, my friends, the king of glory is in our midst. The kingdom of heaven continues to break into earth. Jesus is inviting us to join him as witnesses to the reality of the new age, the rising kingdom. Jesus looks to reveal through us a father who is always good, loving, and seeking to bless his creation. Beloved, if grace is the seed of our salvation, then generosity is the fruit of a grace-filled life. And generous, generous living is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Generous living is the sharing of the gospel, not just with words, but with actions. Generous living is not an occasional act. It is the way of life in Christ. And generous living is what the kingdom blessings, the blessings of grace make possible. Therefore, let us live lives not simply marked by doing our duty or managing our responsibilities out of obligation. Let us live lives marked by generous healing, forgiveness, compassion, and hope, for we are blessed to be a blessing, to live generously, not because we have to, but because we get to. We get to, thanks to Jesus. Amen.